This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. Remember that part. <laughs> I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture. Including the fact that great journalism is being done by a number of excellent reporters and a number of up-and-coming, top-notch journalists. Uh, but as you know, we speak with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks from across the spectrum, people of goodwill who come in good faith. It is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And you know the drill. Subscribe to our program or follow us, depending on the app. And of course, it, it, it really does mean a ton if you could rate us and even leave a review on your podcast app and mostly tell somebody about what we're doing here. Bring it up to with a neighbor or a friend from church or your brother or sister or whoever and say, hey, I was listening to this podcast talking politics and religion without killing each other. And they were talking about the fact that there is good journalism being done. There are good reporters or whichever episode you like to bring up, the one with Larry Wilmore uh, the, or Dr. Russell Moore or Jen Rubin of The Washington Post. Uh, speaking of The Washington Post, we got a special treat today. Um, so many great conversations. Anyway, you know the drill. Subscribe, rate, review, tell somebody. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Mariana Alfaro. Mariana Alfaro is a politics reporter at The Washington Post covering breaking news and was one of the two reporters behind Post Politics Now, the Post's live breaking politics news feed. She joined the Post in 2019 as a researcher for The Daily 202, the newspaper's flagship politics newsletter. And before that, Mariana worked as an intern for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Insider, and The Texas Tribune. A native of San Salvador, Mariana graduated from Northwestern University's Medill School. Mariana, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. All right, so you have to clear something up for me, and this is really uh, quite pressing. Um, are you in your normal Nespresso season, or are you doing fresh press at the, at the moment? <laughs> I'm doing a French press. Uh, one of my colleagues, he was like, don't go back to Nespresso, and I have not touched it again. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, it's gross. <laughs> you know, so in all seriousness, I, there isn't much I still love about Twitter, but your Twitter feed is an absolute delight. I, I learned... Uh, what did I learn about Rat Girl Summer? Um, yeah. I, <laughs> uh, mustard Skittles and the perils therein. <laughs> so, yeah. um, how, so, how, and so how do you approach your Twitter mm -hmm. feed? Obviously, you're sharing stories, some of your own stories, mm -hmm. other stories that you find interesting. But what is your approach to engaging on that platform? Yeah, I think I have a very selenial approach to Twitter. I feel like now, now that it's known as X. Um, it's kind of losing that power it has or that hold it has on us journalists because I feel like, you know, especially in the breaking news world, you're always scouting for like some congressman statement or like, you know, whatever the White House is tweeting. And, and we still use it on that sense. But for me, there's a fine line between, you know, Twitter is at the end of the day more entertainment focused, more like, you know, quick, witty, funny bits. But also it's still a place where my work exists and it's still a place that I need to be professional in. So. You know, I try to stay away from very opinionated, you know, try not to, you know, go one way or the other. But I definitely also use it as a place where I can just be funny and kind of put my thoughts out there. And sometimes, you know, I, I feel like it's a very Gen Z, millennial thing to be always craving attention from the Internet. So I 
we'll put some silly things there and hope that someone will find it funny and like it. Mustard Skittles is a very serious business. Yes. So it was, yeah, that I saw that line. It was here at city center in DC that they were like giving away these mustard Skittles. And I was like, it was a day around, it was like the day after Trump's third indictment. And I was like, this is somehow, you know, more newsworthy than the indictment. It's so funny. Yeah. There's so much there. There's like, Oh, I, I guess I have to change my running route now. And you know, there's just so many <laughs> different things on there. It's really cool. Um, so, okay. So you grew up in El Salvador. <laughs> Did you specifically come to the States to go to school and, um, and was, and was journalism something you yeah. were specifically wanting to pursue or how did that all come about? Yeah, I grew up in El Salvador. I was there until I was 18, you know, went through K through 12. Um, I went to an American school, um, so the American school of El Salvador. It's very much, you know, U.S.-centric education. I've been speaking English since I was three years old. Um, and we are raised very much with this idea of American culture, American history. And throughout all that time, um, I was definitely very privileged to be in that school. It was definitely, you know, one of those things that I really thank my parents for because they really put in a lot of effort to, you know, afford that. But um, I, you know, had excellent American teachers who, you know, really raised me on excellent literature, excellent, um, you know, journalism. They would hand me copies of the New Yorker when I was in like middle school. And I think that that started sparking something in my brain. Um, journalism is not a career that I think a lot of people are rushing to get into in El Salvador. I think that definitely it's one of those things where we really need good journalism in El Salvador. We definitely, um, you know, want to continue supporting that. And I think that you know, great journalism there would do miracles for our democracy, but it wasn't a thing that kids were encouraged to do. And I was very lucky to have the right teachers um, and guidance in my life and also very supportive parents who said, you know, if you want to be a journalist, if you want to write, um, you know, the, the job opportunities are not the same as if you were an engineer, but um, if that's what you want to do, um, go for it. And I think that I got into it just being like, I want to be able to, you know, report on what's going on in El Salvador, what's going on in Latin America. Um, and then I had the wonderful opportunity to, to go to Northwestern University, and that's kind of how I ended up here. <laughs> yeah. You know, you bring mm -hmm. up a really interesting point because you have the perspective of growing up in, a, in another country whose democracy <laughs> is more fragile, to say the least. Um, but, mm -hmm. but in you talking about journalism, having a more robust fourth estate, um, that mm -hmm. it would be healthy for a democracy. So for those of us engaged citizens who are mm -hmm. concerned about the health of journalism in America, is that overblown or do we have reason to be concerned about where it's gone, especially, you know, when we have, uh, I was going to bring this up later, but, you know, enemy of the people and that sort of mindset being thrown around yeah. left and right. I definitely think um, that, you know, losing basic journalism, like, and, and, you know, not only, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times, the big newspapers of the world, but just like the local newspapers losing the local sources, the, the city hall reporting, the council, city council reporting, that makes a big difference. That starts impacting democracy directly the moment that more local newspapers shut down. And I think that in El Salvador, you know, we have had two major newspapers my entire life and um, they've always been, you know, not the best funded. They've never been, you know, with the few journalists they've had, they try to, you know, keep politicians accountable but the fact that they don't have the respect they deserve they don't have the support from the readers that they deserve um that there's not that desire to you know continue funding journalism i could definitely tell that that is directly related to you know the the crumbling of democracy and uh you know it's not only el salvador it's happening across latin america where uh, if you don't have strong journalism a lot of these politicians start you know chipping away 
at um, our democracies. And, you know, coming here in the United States, I, I got here in 2014. And right at the time when all of this started happening here, and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, not here too. Um, when you're starting to like, have, uh, you know, local papers shut down and, you know, re reporters not being able to continue following and pressuring these lawmakers and people in power, you can definitely start telling that things start going sideways. Yeah, yeah. Well, t tell me about your process and your evolution as a writer, as a reporter. Mm -hmm. d d you were so prolific at Northwestern as a reporter, mm -hmm. as a managing editor, e even a, a opinion editor for the Daily mm -hmm. uh, Northwestern's newspaper. Is that where you learned how to write, or was it more when you got to? Mm -hmm. uh, I think Texas Tribune was was one of the mm -hmm. first uh, major stops that that you had. Yeah. Is that where you learned uh, learned the craft of writing? I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually thinking about it earlier today, but I definitely, the Daily Northwestern was my whole education. I, um, I'm glad I went to Northwestern. I took a lot of excellent classes, had great professors. Uh, Medill is an excellent journalism school, but my main classroom was the Daily and, you know, being taught by other people my age too. I mean, we were, you know, 20 year olds running a newspaper and that's the kind of um, you know, experience and power and, 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 and just exposure that we are not going to have for a while until maybe one day we become editors again when we're like 45 or 50. But uh, <laughs> it's that thing where I was, you know, covering some of the biggest stories on this campus that actually got nationwide attention. And uh, when you're 19 and you're on deadline and you also have to do your homework, like it was very intense and it really prepared me to do the kind of work I do now when I am on deadline every other hour sometimes when I have to like rush and make sure that things are all okay and that we can get this up in, in the next 15 minutes. Like that was definitely, I think where I, I really learned my chops. And again, it wouldn't have been the same if I hadn't had the, the professors I had at Northwestern. Like I definitely had top tier Medill journalism professors there. Uh, but it was actually being able to put that theory into practice and, and doing the newspaper. And that's why I say like college journalism is so important. It's really important also that we continue funding that because it's some, for us, the Daily Northwestern was the local paper in Evanston. Like that's the newspaper that held the Evanston lawmakers accountable, the Evanston community accountable. And I think that local, like college newspapers do that across the country. Um, I don't know if you've seen headlines recently, but the Daily Northwestern was the one behind yeah. uncovering all of the stuff in the football team and the baseball team at Northwestern led to the, you know, dismissal of the coach. And I think that that kind of journalism um, that, you know, these are just kids doing it. It's, it's incredible. And I'm really hopeful for the future um, if we continue training journalists like that. Interesting. So you really had an opportunity at, at the Daily at Northwestern, all the mechanics of nurturing relationships with possible sources and, you know, the writing of it. And w one aspect that was really clear, I loved reading. There was that semester when you were an opinion editor and I loved reading some of those columns. Is op-ed something you'd like to get back to or are you a reporter now through and through at this point? I think I'm a reporter now through and through right now. Um, I, and I think it'll be like that for the next, few years of my career. I don't know if I uh, have it in me to do opinion again, because it was burying my soul to the world, you know? And actually, one of my colleagues who I admire a lot of the Post, James Holman, he and I uh, did the Daily 202 together, the politics newsletter a few years ago, and he left that job to go do opinion. And now he writes incredible opinions for the Post. And he also runs a lot of like our, you know, whenever something big happens, he's on the live show giving his thoughts and everything. And that man is an encyclopedia of knowledge. So I feel like I would only go do that once I achieve that level of just knowing so many things. Um, but yeah. it was a thing that I'm very, I think I would go more towards the, 
more like book uh, focus. Like I would, I would, at some point I would like to, you know, delve a little bit deeper into just the experience of coming here and writing about politics as a person who's not American and has never really followed American politics growing up. Uh, but that I think is a very down the road kind of idea um, because I do like being able to put more emotion into um, what I'm writing and putting out there and more thought. But uh, right now I, I really love just the world of breaking politics and, and everything, just following every single political thing that happens in the U.S. Um, and, I, and I think I'm going to stick to that for, for the near future. That's interesting. So you could see yourself writing longer form at some point, uh, specifically nonfiction, or would you ever write uh... – you know, like a no- the, the great American novel or the great sense of San Salvadoran uh, novel. <laughs> yeah, I actually got into journalism because I wanted to be a fiction writer. And I was like, well, I need to make money. Like, I can't go and get another <laughs> <laughs> So my parents were like, yeah, I think journalism is the right choice here. Um, and again, it's, I, I have friends who are writers and who are, you know, trying to get their novels out. And that seems like a very hard, very expensive thing to do. And I feel like not, not right now. But, you know, one day I'm hoping to be able to, to get back to that. Um, but I mean, this job is 24 seven almost, you know, every time uh, something breaks, like we gotta be on it. And I feel like uh, I love it. I love the fast pace, but I don't really get a chance to sit back and be like, let me be creative for a little second and, and delve into fiction. Yeah, I definitely wanna add, I have lots of questions for you about the post, but one one other question, were there certain pieces that were harder to write than others at, when you were doing opinion for Northwestern, for, for the Daily? Uh, like uh, there was one that you did, I think you co-wrote it with your colleague there, um, where you were encouraging Northwestern students to continue speaking up in the midst of the Me Too movement. Were there certain pieces that were really uh, a lot harder for you to write than others? Yes, I think pieces where I clearly had uh, something to say about an issue, but I wasn't directly connected to it. I mean, obviously, uh, the Me Too movement was at its, I guess, peak, or it was really, you know, dominating headlines when I was at Northwestern. And so it was kind of easy to, to write about it just because it was something that I feel like it, it, it unfortunately is a universal experience for women to just kind of have to deal with these things. Uh, but there were other issues um, that I, you know, had some connection to, but I hadn't been personally impacted by it. And I think that that's where I crossed the line of being like, well, I still have like a thought on this. I still have opinions, but um, how do I go around it without, you know, making myself the focus of it or like without having like a direct connection to it? Um, but definitely I think I had a piece and I, and I was rereading it in preparation for this, but I, I wrote about, you know, the visa process and the, mm. um, situation I found myself in where I did not expect to want to cover us politics when I first got here. And then two years in, I realized that I was a politics junkie and that I, I really wanted to keep doing this. And then I had to figure out how to do it. Um, and, and, you know, navigating the U S immigration system and the U S visa system, um, at, at that age was so scary and I wrote that and I think about it a lot because I think it was one of the pieces that um, really resonated with a lot of people even though they didn't personally relate to it because a lot of my readers were American uh, but it was incredible and I think that's how I found out like a lot of people don't know how hard it actually is to not be American in the country and um, that one was so easy to write I think I started writing it on my phone and then just you know showed up to the office and was like let's run this and uh, and that was just probably the easiest bit of writing I've ever done, but it was really hard to publish because I was just really burying my soul to the entire internet. 
So that's so interesting. So that you you initially didn't couldn't see yourself going into politics, but it was like a life experience that kind of brought you into it. Your own experience that fascinated you about politics um, and drove you there. What did you envision if it wasn't politics? What road of writing and reporting would you have gone down? I definitely uh, would have gone back to Mexico because I'm also Mexican, but I would have gone back to Mexico and been a foreign correspondent there. I always wanted to keep writing in English. I unfortunately have to say my writing in Spanish is not as good as my writing in English. There's too many accents. Uh, what are your yeah. what are your tweets was about how, how how do you spell indictment in yeah, Spanish? Like, I, I don't know how to say indictment in Spanish. I still don't. It's been four and I still don't know. Uh, and it's stuff like that. Like whenever I'm put on Spanish radio or Spanish TV, I'm like, oh, give me a second. I need to have like a cheat sheet with all of this stuff <laughs> translated. And it, it drives my mom insane. She's like, I cannot believe that you don't know how to say this in Spanish. But, but that was the original plan. And I still hope to one day. I, I know I'm talking big game about hopes yeah. and dreams. I mean, you know, I'm relatively, relatively early career. But um, I do hope to one day go back and, and cover Latin America for the post. Like that's uh, one of my goals. Um, but I really just got sucked into the world of U.S. politics. And mm. um, for now, that is literally everything I want to do. Wow. You know, something else that's worth noting is I've heard you as a guest on shows that are more in the conservative media ecosystem. Um, and we were talking about, you know, these notions, enemy of the people being thrown around in the Trump era in particular. I was wondering if you've had to face adverse or um, just like generally unfriendly circumstances, whether it's on these other media appearances or when you're trying to interview subjects that aren't fans of the Washington Post. Like what kind of um, obstacles have you faced? Yeah, it's happened a few times. I can't say like every time I go out, you know, something to no, I, that's definitely not my experience to con- continuously be harassed. That's not a thing. But <laughs> it has happened sometimes where, you know, um, covering certain topics or going to certain rallies and just, you know, being told, like, I don't want to speak to you or, like, um, kind of off-handed, off-color comments. And um, I I think I do a good poker face, but my end goal is remembering that I'm there to, you know, get the story and get as many voices as I can into it. And I think that um, I really rationalized um, the way I do this. And I've really said, you know, the end result is trying to, let readers know why people think this way, why people are saying this. Um, you know, my motto is that at the end of the day, the reader will have enough information, enough context to make their own decision about a situation. And I think that, you know, when I was younger, when I was, uh, you know, 2017 and, and at the Texas Tribune and covering uh, the first few months of the Trump administration, it happened more than it happens now that I would get some off color comment and and just kind of have to be like you know what okay fine like you can say that but i still would like to know your thoughts on this situation and uh we can you know talk about that later or maybe not but like um there's a reason why um i'm trying to talk to you and um you know i think it's made it easier i don't know if it's if it's a long-winded way of saying but it's made it easier you know to go up now to congress and uh, and, and talk to a lot of lawmakers that might be saying certain things about, you know, issues that uh, kind of impact me directly, but still being able to talk to them and have a normal conversation and try to understand, you know, where they're coming from and, you know, why voters decided to have them represent them. And I think that is very important because I can't just ignore um, a lawmaker because they say X, Y, and Z. I still need to talk to them. I still need to get them uh, for my story and get their voice. And and so I think this idea of, you know, cutting uh, figures out of stories just because they, you know, 
might be saying certain things on the record or in public that you know you don't personally agree with or personally affect you like that is doing a disservice to readers um and so um i really you know hear them up there's a saying in spanish dentro del oído fuera el otro like i just like okay you're gonna say that fine but uh please help me understand your viewpoint better that's interesting so are do you find that it's it's very divided like the um whether it's elected official republican elected officials versus democratic versus elected officials or their staff or is, is it is it one-sided are you able to cultivate those relationships on both sides of the aisle um, and it's more on an individual basis, like this individual um, uh, congressperson or this individual staffer is more averse to having a conversation. Or is it really red, you know, red and blue and, and the red side, the Republicans are very um, anti-Washington Post or am I thinking of it too simplistically? I definitely think that it's not like once you get to the personal level, once you're talking to someone one on one, like on, their, on you know, in front of you in person, like they don't say no. They, they definitely want to chat. Uh, they definitely understand the role that the media has in, you know, their goals. And also they understand the goals that we have as media. And I think that once you take the Twitter off things, once you take the Internet off things, once you take the, the radio or, or, t- or video clips or, or the things that, you know, go viral and get people riled up, once you're just two human beings speaking on the halls of Congress, that is so easy. That is so mm. simple to be like, listen, can we talk about this thing that you are, want, this bill that you want to pass? Or can we talk about this issue that's making the news? Um, and they'll actually, most of the time, give you an honest opinion, like talk to you. Um, even, you know, sometimes it's really nice when their spokespeople aren't around because then they are even more candid. And so um, it, it really is good to go up to the hill and see these people as you know, humans and, and talk to them one-on-one and, and just go up to them and say, hi, congressman or woman, how are you doing? Uh, how's your day going? Like, what did you do, you know, last week? Like, blah, blah, blah. And then like, also, do you have a comment on this? Sometimes they'll be like, no comment, sorry, and then move on. Uh, but a lot of the time they do take their time and say, hi, like, yeah, let's talk about this. Or like, this is my thought. And sometimes it's the same thing they tweeted and at least you have it on the record in person. Uh, but sometimes you get to push them a little deeper and be like, but why do you believe that? And I think that that's, you know, a great thing um, uh, that I would love to convey more to readers that at the end of the day, they have these big, some some of these folks have these big personalities online, whether it's left or right, I'm, I'm talking like both sides here, but like they have these big personalities online um, because they have to do that to continue promoting their brand, to continue promoting their campaign, to continue, you know, getting folks to support them. But uh, once you meet them one-on-one, they're, you know, they're just like you and me and they have their own thoughts and their own opinions. And um, more the often than not that do want to get things done. Um, it's just more so, you know, getting, you know, wrapped up in this whole world of campaigns and elections and bureaucracy um, that makes them see- seem so unapproachable when they're really not. I, I'll take your word for it, but there, there's got to be at least one or two Congress people I think of that uh, they're, they're there mostly because it does things for, you know, they, they get more followers online. Yeah, you know, I definitely I, I got, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being know. very idealistic, but I feel like, um, you know, the longer you're there, and I haven't been on the Hill that long. Um, I definitely have colleagues who are way more experienced at this than me. I still get a little nervous approaching certain figures. Uh, but I, I think a lot of the time I, I have had a lot of luck getting these folks to, to say something, but a lot That's of the good. time it's just, you know, to continue being elected and being in office and they really want to keep just doing that. Um, and so it, it's a fine line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't have to mention any particular names, not that it would 
rhyme with Schmarjorie Schmeller Schmeen. <laughs> um, but I just she's like, this will be great for my Twitter feed. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, so uh, one other question of kind of how you deal with it personally. Did you so when you have that hard day, when you have a difficult encounter, um, how have you learned how to deal with that? You, you know, you shared um, some of your mottos and stuff. But do you learn from your colleagues, other reporters, other or your editors, or is it something like you go and you do meditation at the end of every day? How do you deal? How do you deal with it personally when things, you know, because things I'm sure can get rough out there some days. Yeah, I run a lot. I, I'm a really bad med. I can't meditate. It's really <laughs> a thing I've been struggling with. Um, I've I've been a Catholic my entire life, and it's really hard for me to even like do the basic like the rosary, meditation. the whole yeah, the yeah, prayer, like yeah. that that does not relax me at all. But I run a lot, and I feel like if I don't run, I will be more stressed. And I think that that's the one time I have to clear my mind. And, you know, D.C. is a beautiful city to run in, and uh, there's a lot of runners here. And there's a joke that, you know, D.C. runners will run through everything. I feel like during the January 6th insurrection, there were still people running. Um, And so (laughs) that's that's very helpful. And I do think I'm very lucky to be in a newsroom that is so supportive of, you know, um, uh, understanding that sometimes days are rough and that it's okay to, you know, take a step back from a story. Um, I think that, um, I'm not saying the post has always been perfect at that, but at least in recent years, I think that there's been a better understanding that you can, you can't have a good reporter if the reporter's overwhelmed and burned out. And at least in my team, I think that we've, I've been really lucky to have editors who understand that. Um, and it's been, you know, a rough couple of years, um, in terms of everything. Um, yeah. but I think that, you know, since I joined the post, we've had a pandemic, we've had 2020 election, we've had the midterms that were very, you know, just everything was happening all at once. And we had the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe, like it's a lot of things, um, at once. And, um, then all the Trump pandemic, like, you know, it's, it's all of these, and these directions, all of these things. And if you don't take a break, sometimes you lose sight of, you know, that fact that we're still just humans and that, you know. Um, sometimes I wonder people who are not, you know, tuned to politics 24 seven, like how do they live? Uh, it must be really nice. But if you lose sight of the fact <laughs> that you have to take a break, um, yeah. then, then you're never going to be at peace. So I'm really happy that I, uh, it's a lesson I learned early on in my career, like, you know, at this point in my career before, you know, I spent the next 25 years doing this, um, that it's okay to, to say no to certain assignments because you have to like, you know, restart and reset, um, but and, and sometimes you just don't want to take a break because you want to continue being on a story. And that's, you know, good, but not you can't do that all the time. You have to, to right. take a step back. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So since you mentioned the indictments, um, I've noticed that a bunch of your stories, you, you you're one of the, you're one reporter on these major stories that The Post is doing. Um, so first, I, I was curious if you could shed some light on that process. Like when a number of reporters are on a story together, how does it work? Like if you could take us behind the scenes and share with our listeners more about the whole process from getting the assignment to uh, what's involved in gathering the information on the story to uh, how you collaborate with your with your colleagues at The Post on a big story like that. Uh, just take us behind the, the, the curtain. How does that all work? Uh, definitely. And I think this is a product of where we are at now in terms of technology and the internet and like people being used to being fed like tidbits of information little by little as we get it instead of like a full story three hours after the fact. Um, you know, the world of breaking news and Twitter and all of that has really shaped uh, people's appetite for, for news. And so what my team does is that we're the breaking news team. So there's a five of us reporters to editors. Um, and we're always uh, the ones that are tapped in whenever 
a story that's going to be a long, a day long thing happens like the indictment this week. Uh, we were just waiting for it to drop. So we started um, early in the day, uh, this thing that we call a live update feed, um, a live blog, basically, uh, where uh, the beat reporters, the people who are been following the, the case, the Georgia case specifically right now, um, they are uh, queued in, they, they are joining us, but every uh, major update that happens, like one of us will be uh, assigned to write it. Um, you know, that day the, the indictment dropped uh, at like 10 p.m. And so we were all still online just waiting. Uh, we divide the indictment up, see who reads what page. Um, anything that sticks out, you like flag it to the editors and someone will write it or like, you know, just watching the feed of the judge receiving the documents and, you know, writing color based on that and just like important things that readers should know. Like, for example, the fact that Georgia lets you film inside the courthouse. That's very new. And we didn't have that for the other indictments. And just important to let the readers know that this is major, that we can be able to see and track this document as it makes its way to the judge. Little things like that, that ultimately will make their way into the like longer story that the beat reporter will write, but that we have the chance to put up online immediately. Um, and so people don't have to be, you know, refreshing Twitter or any other social media, but they can just continue being on our site and following it step by step. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing we do for a lot of things like debates. Um, you know, uh, uh, the other indictments, we've done that too. I think we do it too on the other side for foreign. I mean, I'm not on that team, but like with Ukraine and then the, and the war, like we usually do, the Post usually will have something like that set up for like immediate um, news for people. But it's very fast paced. It's definitely a thing that we're all on the slack at the same time. It's kind of be chaotic. Uh, but I think we've really fine tuned the, the communication in there. Um, and again, I live for that, just being able to move fast. It's my favorite aspect of the job, um, because it, it definitely gives you a rush. It definitely yeah. uh, has some psychological element there where I like really get in, into it. Um, and it's fun because I, I think that, you know, being a general politics reporter as I am, like I get to touch a lot of different topics. Um, like, you know, I, I whenever Congress is in session, I like, like to focus on that, but I'm also covering Biden, but I'm also covering... Um, indictments and elections and all of these things, uh, which helps. I, I mean, I'm just very curious and very um, happy to jump from thing to thing. And, and I think at some point I would like to maybe just focus on one thing. But um, for now, it really works because I feel like I can talk about a lot of these things. Um, but it, it definitely takes a little more sitting with a beat um, and developing resources. And that's a lot of my, my other colleagues do. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I risk the possibility of really getting into the reporter weeds, but um, to, to, to kind of pick up on what you were saying, there was a story, I think I saw it today or maybe yesterday um, that you did. Uh, you did this one solo, if I remember correctly, on uh, Sarah Longwell and her group uh, doing a campaign to influence Republicans to continue supporting Ukraine. So, okay. So this is my in the weeds question. So, if you're looking for quotes or background uh, information, do you already know someone like Sarah Longwell or Bill Kristol? Or I think you got a quote not from Kevin McCarthy, but from Kevin McCarthy's representative. Do you already have those relationships? And if not, how do you approach those, um, the key people in the story? Uh, is it someone that maybe you could ask one of your colleagues, hey, do you know so-and-so? And can I, you know, how does that all work? How do you, how do you access those people? It's a combination of all of those. I think okay. uh, for this specific story, like um, I've already been in touch with uh, um, Longwell and Partners, which is Sarah Longwell's like uh, communications firm, and they were they were saying like, yeah, we have this campaign coming up. Like, you know, we could connect you to Sarah. And I 
previously spoken to Sarah once about another story, because I know that she very much is in the camp of, you know, um, getting the Republican Party not to nominate uh, former President Trump again. And so we've spoken before about that. And I think that this time, you know, with the appropriations fight coming up, like they have been very much focused on making sure that Ukraine continues receiving support, uh, which is something that is really dividing um, the GOP right now. And so um, in that case, like they connected me with her and then they had, um, you know, two other sources I, that are, you know, as they describe Americans who have opinions on this. And I was really thankful because I, I anytime I can, you know, talk to like a normal person about uh, the topics <laughs> that are all these lawmakers are talking about, like that is my favorite thing because that is who uh, really, you know, matters here is like who any regular American has to say about these things. And uh, that's usually the case. I, I think for Congress and lawmakers, we definitely have, you know, um, contacts to their law, their, their spokespeople or their communication staff. And uh, if, it's, if I don't have it, then I reach out to another reporter who does. Um, I will say, like, I, I'm in awe of how well connected um, a lot of, uh, like, the reporters are at the Post. Like, we all kind of know some person or someone knows a person who knows a person. Um, and that's the beauty of journalism in a newsroom that is, like, us, you know, uh, 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 resourceful, I suppose. And um, at the end of the day, you know, we always find a way to find uh, these these people. But it, it's piecing it together like that. Um, I think that it's easier when it's Congress is in session because you can just go and ask. Uh, but right now, when everyone's just spread out, it's easier just to reach out to their spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I do need to ask you. This is about the newsiest thing that I'm going to ask you. Some some people that I'm having conversations with uh, about the four criminal indictments that Trump now has, um, that people are starting to, it's starting to get clear as mud. They're starting, so if you wouldn't mind, um, give us a summary of where the four major criminal cases are, leaving aside the civil suits that the Trump and his businesses face, but where do things stand now with the criminal case, uh, with the, yeah, the criminal cases? Yes. Um, I'm going to have to start from the newest okay. one. That's yeah. The one yeah. I've been talking about over the last 48 hours, but um, yeah, so right now, you know, Fannie Willis, uh, district attorney of uh, Fulton County in Georgia, she has filed this indictment against Trump and 18 others, which is a pretty sweeping uh, piece of document that that is. Um, and that, I think, might be the most tricky for Trump that might present the biggest legal threat to him just because there's it's a state case. Like he if he becomes president, which he very much still can, um, he can't order the DOJ to stop, you know, doing that investigation because it's in the state. Also, Georgia is one of two, I think, states in the country that doesn't have a uh, governor pardon. So, like, he can't even go ask the Republican governor of Georgia to pardon him if, if, you know, anything, if it comes to that. So it's definitely, the, in my opinion, the biggest legal threat the president faces. Um, it's going to take a while, though. I think that Willis wants to, you know, have a trial in six months. And I, given the scope of this uh, of this indictment and how many people are involved in it, the fact that it's just not Trump charges 18 others, it probably will take longer than that. Already we're seeing Mark Meadows, who's also indicted his former chief of staff, he already is saying like, hey, 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 I don't want to be, you know, doing this in state court. Like, can we do this federally? Because I was a federal employee when this happened, so I should be allowed to move this to the federal court. And so already little things like that are going to start to chip away at the timeline that Willis has set. Um, again, all of this could happen, will likely happen, even after, you know, it could, could happen after the election. And so very much a chance that, you know, if former President Trump is reelected, that he's going to be dealing with this during his presidency. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, Jack Smith, who did two, uh, he's the DOJ special counsel. He did two investigations, one, one into January 6th um, and the other one into the classified documents. 
of, of those two, the January 6th one is more serious. And even though it touches on the same things that Willis is looking at, um, Jack Smith only charged Trump. And uh, I think they're still working on setting, you know, when, when, when that's going to, you know, go to trial, when it's going to be in court. But the thing with that case is that it's more, uh, you know, quick and, and, and just he didn't have as much time as Willis to, to put this case. So I think it's four charges. Um, and I, I, one of the experts that the, the Post spoke to said, you know, Jack, uh, Jack Smith's case is the spark notes and Fanny Willis is a novel. And uh, <laughs> you kind of get the gist of what yeah. happened from Jack Smith. But Fanny Willis is the one that's going to paint a picture. Right. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But again, if Trump is elected president again, he could very much go to the DOJ and say, hey, let's not talk about this anymore. Um, and same with the classified documents case, which, again, all of this stuff happened after uh, the 2020 election. He really, you know, could have just turned those documents in and there would have been no case for the documents case. But um, that one is also, I think, awaiting uh, for, the, for the trial to start. Um, and then there's uh, the very first one, which is the case of, um, you know, paying uh uh for stormy uh, daniels for, yeah. for stormy daniels yes and i think that that one <laughs> i'm so sorry but my brain has already <laughs> reset. i feel like I, I i can read one article and be like yes that's where we're at but yeah I, I feel like that was the one that was unprecedented the three other indictments i feel like once you have one indictment you can no longer say that this is unprecedented because you already have one indictment so um i think we always say like these are unprecedented times and i'm like no i feel pretty pretty precedented at this point um by the time that the Georgia indictment dropped on Monday, uh, we already knew what we, you know, what we were doing. And uh, the, the interesting part about the Georgia one is that he's going to get fingerprinted and there's going to be a mug shut and he has to turn himself into a jail. That's like, you know, more color. And he's definitely going to use that in his favor. And, like, you know, we know that his face is not going to let go. Um, this is not going to scare them away. And so I think that that might just add to the fact that this is a former president who's being indicted again. But other than that, um, it just there's so many um at this point that um you know remembering every single detail can 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 get a little murky yeah sure well the post has been so good you in particular and and the your team have been so good about keeping things clear creating flow charts and graphs so we could keep track of it and the dates and the calendars and so that's all great i was curious though if you're i haven't maybe i haven't read everything but have you gone into the field and spoken to voters, whether it's Trump supporters or other um, other individuals in the electorate to see how they're because that's a huge part of the, the overall story. How is the electorate uh, responding to these? Have you done any of that work or um, or if not, um, have you been checking in with your colleagues uh, to see, you know, to, to get a feel for how the electorate is responding to these uh, indictments? Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to actually go out there beyond D.C. I think that my because I'm so focused on just the, the daily politics section, I, I have asked lawmakers, like, how do you feel about indictment over it, too? But um, again, I, every chance I get to talk to an actual like civil, like civilian about this, it's a, <laughs> it's a treat for me. And I really do want to do more of that. But I do know that a lot of my colleagues haven't had that opportunity, especially right now with the Iowa uh, fair going on. Like a lot of our campaign reporters are out there asking voters about this and uh, Maeve Reston, who's um, one of our, actually, she just got hired by the Post and she's amazing and she's covering um, a lot of these campaigns. She wrote a story, uh, it, it was either last night or today, but it was basically about how um, the base is still, um, the, the Trump's base is still there for him and like nothing about this has changed their mind. And uh, then you get to talk to, you know, other 
uh, the never Trumpers and, and the people who are actually horrified by this. And they're saying, like, I don't we don't know what else we can do to convince people that uh, we have to drop him. And, and we're talking about people who probably are looking towards um, Asa Hutchinson or Chris Christie or Will Hurd. But all of these folks are, you know, pulling very behind. Um, and, and even those who thought that Ron DeSantis uh, was a better option or who would be the next, you know, standard bearer for the Republican Party. Um, have grown a little disillusioned that Ron DeSantis is out there saying, you know, defending Trump and standing by him instead of using or, or you know, seeing all these indictments and, and saying, you know, we don't, we, we, I can be Trump if I use this in my favor. And he's obviously still sticking by the president. So I think that there's um, this feeling against all these uh, never Trumpers, like the, the, the GOP that doesn't want to continue going down the Trump lane of, uh, well, what do we do now? Like nobody's taking this as seriously as they should. Mm, yeah. Um, so going back to elected officials, Congress people, mm-hmm. um, other other people, uh, you know, politicians, mm-hmm. I get, and this is a very unscientific theory, but I mm-hmm. I often get the impression that they wake up and e- either speak to their comms team or they read whatever bullet points WinRed sends them or Vote Blue sends them, and as a reporter, it's very hard to get them off of the talking points, mm-hmm. those bullet points that WinRed uh, w- will send them. Are you able to penetrate past that? Mm-hmm. And if so, how do you do it? Um, it's very true that they <laughs> sometimes just parrot the same thing or they just repeat what, what has been you know, the, the message of the day, basically. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, and, and I really hope to continue developing this because again, I, I feel like I, I'm on the hill as a newbie, but um, there's a way of forming that relationship where you get to, you know, but is that how you really feel? <laughs> is that what you actually yeah. think? Often that's when, uh, you know, on background kicks in or, mm. you know, like a, a Republican familiar with the situation said, and uh, then you can really hear them say their actual, you know, uh, like maybe it's still part of the messaging, but they're like add a little bit to it. Um, sometimes when something chaotic happens and they're kind of off guard or like, you know, they're like tired or they're like um, actually, you know, think that they would m- move the needle forward to just say what's on their mind. Like they'll say it. Uh, and I think we can probably maybe expect some of that um, in the appropriations fight. Uh, but oftentimes it, it's a little bit of patience, a little bit of knowing how to, you know, get them in the, in the right, you know, mood or ask the right question. Um, but I think often we just turn to, you know, a, a Democrat familiar with the situation or a Democrat in the room said, um, and I know that that is tricky because you, readers want to know who's actually saying this. Um, so it's one of those things where you kind of have to negotiate, um, you know, is it worth getting this actual real thought on here um, versus, you know, uh, like, does it add to the story? Does it really you know, show that there is a different a different lane here that it's not being reported elsewhere. And I think that that's kind of when we kick in and say, okay, we, we can use this on background. Um, and that's the thing about journalism. I feel like uh, people are just like, you know, all these terms that we use um, and then we throw out uh, at readers and readers are like, I don't know what that means. And that's, uh, you know, on the record, off the record, on the background, all of that stuff. Um, yeah. It's a little yeah. silly, but yeah. <laughs> No, no. Actually, I did have a question for you about yeah. the, the, the business, the, the news business. It, you know, just in the time that you've graduated from Northwestern and Texas Tribune, mm-hmm. um, the, biz, the news business has adapted and evolved. I'm curious if you have thoughts about how, how good journalism is actually being done or how good journalists mm-hmm. are overcoming these unique challenges of today, mm-hmm. um, how it's different from when you first started and, mm-hmm. and um, where you see things going from here. Yeah, I think um, I started at a point where people are still tr- recovering from 2008 and, uh, you know, a lot of 
things had shut down or a lot of things were being done differently. The digital pivot uh, was still happening. It's still happening right now, but I think we're in a better place in terms of like, what do we want digitally? Again, what my team does is live update speed. That's definitely a product of realizing that readers want things now. And like, it's better if we get their attention now and then offer them a longer piece later with more details and like a, a bigger, you know, piece of paper that you can hold at breakfast in the printed paper. <laughs> um, and definitely that's, there's still an appetite for like the printed product. And I think I'm definitely one of those journalists who like loves the print paper. Um, but it's also, you know, time to be real and understand that uh, most people don't get the newspaper delivered to their front step anymore. Um, and so I think that, uh, especially for my generation uh, of journalists, like we went to journalism school and they were still very much taught like the old school journalism of, you know, writing a lead and like obviously we still do that but like taking your time with the story and obviously we still do that but a lot of the time it also involves like moving quick and tweeting and pulling things from youtube and pulling things from facebook and pulling things from all the social medias in the world and like um trying to figure out if this thing is real or fake because a lot of things on the internet are fake and a lot of those skills that i think we only pick up by doing instead of you know they're not really being taught in, in a college classroom right now um, also just being able to communicate directly with the audience has been a game shifter. Um, I think that before the most you got was like a letter sent to your desk and like people were angry, but now you could immediate feedback on your inbox every single time you publish <laughs> a story or Twitter. Yeah. Um, and so that really has changed the stakes because readers can approach you, which is good because you get, you know, to hear their thoughts and that kind of can help you guide your reporting. But also it's kind of nerve wracking sometimes when you publish something, you're like, Oh God, like what is this going to, you know, start in my inbox. Uh, but I do appreciate being able to hear that feedback. I, I really love it when uh, readers have, you know, good commentary, good criticism. Um, I always welcome that. But I definitely think that we're still in the adjustment period of realizing how we can make money out of being digital. I think a lot of the time we get the, well, this is off behind the paywall. Like, how am I supposed to read it? It's like, yeah, like, I'm really sorry that there is a paywall for a story. But like, we do need to keep the lights on. And like, I know that at the Post, we, you know, have all this money um, uh, uh, from Jeff Bezos, and that was, you know, something that really revitalized the newsroom. Um, and every time I bring Jeff Bezos up, I have to say, you know, like, he doesn't have any involvement with our coverage, and we're still very much independent. But um, not every billionaire is out there buying a newspaper, and it's devastating to see, you know, layoffs at newspapers that I've loved my entire life, the LA Times, the um, you know, I think that all of the um, the Miami Heralds and the Houston Chronicles of the world, like a lot of those places are going to layoffs in the USA today. Um, and so I think that, I, I don't know, I leave it up to the NBA people to figure out how to make uh, money out of journalism. But it really is that thing where I think the model of the future is profit model. I think that when you see the Texas Tribune, which is funded by donors, when you see ProPublica, uh, when you see all these like the Baltimore banner, uh, Baltimore banner over in Baltimore, um, that are, you know, funded by the community, funded by people who actually know that local journalism is what, you know, is keeping their cities running. Um, I think that that makes me hopeful that that is a new model that we should be looking more into. But again, when you have big newspapers like the Post and the Times, like obviously those are not particularly keen to, to I mean, we already have the money, but it's definitely the local papers that need more of the community support. You know, so... I was asking uh, Mike Leon about this, and I'm curious if you have thoughts or advice to news consumers. How can we be better consumers of the news, be more discerning about you know, what we're reading and, and what is good uh, journalism? And 
what is good reporting? What are facts? You know, how 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 do we how can we be better at uh, being good consumers of the news? Yeah, I think my first uh, piece of advice is not to just be loyal to one uh, publication or outlet. I think sometimes people are like, well, I have a subscription to X. I don't need Y and Z. And I think that that is a disservice, uh, not to the newspaper, but to yourself. Like, I think that you should be getting your news from different places and have a media diet that um, includes points of views that you don't necessarily agree with. Um, I think that, you know, I I will tune into both MSNBC and Fox News because I want to get to know what both sides are saying. I want to get to know, you know, who are they bringing up as um, commentators? Who are they bringing up as pundits? Who are they bringing up as the lawmakers who want to talk to them? Um, and I also think that something that I think has made the polarization so much feel more intense in the country is that people are only tuning into politics. Um, and whenever I open the Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, there's a whole other wealth of stories out there that have nothing to do with what Congress is doing or what the president is doing. There's incredible things being written about also a lot of, of the economics and, and, and race and, and, and other issues that are very, you know, hot button issues in the arts section in the sports section um and i think that you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not also trying to tune into those storylines and see why the culture shift is feeling this way or that way um i think that that you know helps us understand uh where we are in this moment in time because politics is not just you know confined to washington dc or the state house it's also part of you know the the art that we're putting out there and you know how baseball teams are developing yeah um and so it, it, it basically the advice here is just don't be just don't take one lane like try all the lanes just also and i and this is like a twitter thing but it's definitely like touch grass like i think like sometimes <laughs> we're so we get so here we so get so intense about certain things and we're like on twitter refreshing the feed or like you know looking at the news and just always online and sometimes whenever that happens to me, I'm like, I need to go outside and like look at a tree and like look at the sky and yeah. remember that like you're just a human being and you can't carry all of that inside and you can't like let these conversations and these issues like, you know, cause you a level of stress or a, a level of annoyance that you're carrying it onto your relationships with real people in the world. That's great advice. That is really good advice. Get outside, look at the sky, listen to a bird. <laughs> That's funny. All right, so I have one more. I, I'm going to ask you for some more advice. Uh, this is what I call the TPNR question, talk politics and religion question. What do you think each of us can do to be better able to share space with, have better conversations with, ha even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who, who read a different newspaper than we do, um, and get their, their news from different sources. How can we be better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible? Um, I definitely think it's possible because I do it on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, I, and it's definitely not an easy thing. I feel like I had a harder time, you know, keeping my um, lion from jumping out uh, when I was, you know, starting off. And again, I'm, I'm still starting off. I'm still not, not a pro in this business at all but like it definitely takes a lot of patience and a lot of knowing where your own boundaries are where what your limit is and if you're starting to get to that place where like okay my like heart rate's going up like I'm starting to get like a little pee that this person like then you draw back and be like ah you know what like let's pick this up again in a few seconds what do you think about what the nationals did yesterday 
Um, yeah. And I think that that is always, and, and it also happens whenever I'm on like an interview or like a TV hit or something. I'm like, okay, like, you know, but let's talk about this other thing that is kind of related, but not really. Um, but also just a level of tolerance and patience of knowing that this other person has their own set of, fa- of facts and information. Um, and they're coming from their own, they're interpreting the news from the place that they're coming from in the background and the education and the family that they have and the, the things that they've interacted with life. And they're not, the, they're never going to be the same uh, things that you've interacted with in life. Even mm. if you guys are like identical twins, like you still have different life experiences that have colored the way that you interpret things now. And I think that oftentimes we forget that even if we might have very similar backgrounds, like you, there was some life experience that they had that you didn't. And that's why they think this way. And they might not even recognize that. They might not even know that that's where the switch turned on. Uh, but I think that it definitely takes um, some taking a step back and realizing that um, nev- no one's ever going to think the same way you do. And while it's nice to be around people who do think the same way you do, it's very much a disservice to you and the world if you're only around those people. And I'm not saying, you know, go, you know, be best friends with someone who's being insulting or hurting or, or hurtful to you or someone you love or a community you love. Like, that's not really um, also fair to yourself. Like, that's definitely also doing some damage to yourself. But it doesn't mean that you shut down an entire group of people just because you have this belief that they are never going to understand you. I feel like once you get off, um, again, the internet, or you want to confront someone face to face, um, the claws are not out, you know, like people remember that you have a face that you have a, that you're your own person. And most times, again, not, this is not a generalizing, thing, but like most times you'll have, um, if, even if it's not a pleasant conversation, a, a doable conversation, uh, again, I've had a ch- times where I'm like, you know what, you're not going to listen to me. You're not go- My point's not going to come across. I can't change your mind about this. I'm going to leave this conversation now. And again, there's 7 billion people in the world and you can't get to have a good conversation with everyone all the time. But um, uh, sometimes some people you just can't. And, and I'm really sorry. And it really sucks because you kind of wish that everyone could just say their word and, 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 and make peace with it. But um it's better to you know draw the line and say okay i tried good to know you uh moving on yeah that's really good advice and you know mostly just keeping in mind that people have their views um and and it's based on context their life experience Mm -hmm. their you know what they've been through and and who they know and who they're hanging out with and Mm -hmm. where they're getting so contextualize it but you also gave me a really good idea maybe a way that we can keep the indictments straight is by naming uh the uh four indictments after four of the five national east baseball teams so we have the washington nationals indictment we have the atlanta braves indictment that's really serious we have the the florida marlins indictment you know yeah Um, and and they're real they're really you know you gotta you gotta start looking at that and then you got the new york mets indictment you just don't have to take seriously at all i'm just yes. <laughs> totally no, kidding <laughs> actually no i saw that on, again not to bring it back to twitter but i did see that on twitter and i think it was like only philly doesn't have it yeah um and i was like philly gotta get on it <laughs> yeah seriously there's got to be yeah. something in philly right or bucks county at the very least come on um, so. <laughs> all right so do you have any questions for me um yeah actually i just kind of want to know how this uh podcast came to be i think that when I first started, I thought we would also be talking about religion, which is uh, a thing that I also, you know, love to talk about. Because uh, as I mentioned, like, oh. I was raised Catholic. I've always been Catholic. And it's interesting to be, you know, a Catholic reporter in the age of Joe Biden and also, you know, before this Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but 
yeah, how did this podcast come to be, and you know why? Um, like, how, what have you heard in the since in the last few? And I heard a few, but like, what is the best advice we've gotten from other people about how to talk politics and religion uh, with others? Yeah, so I started this three years ago, but it it was something that I've been thinking about for much much longer. I grew up in an observant Jewish family, and I, but I became a born again Christian in my late twenties. Um, so when when that happened. You, I'm sure you could imagine that I had to have very difficult conversations with my family about why I became a Christian. Um, and they were very fraught conversations, especially in the early days. Um, but also, because I was a Christian, I was going to church and becoming friends with people that I could see had very strong opinions about social and political issues, even more so than the theological issues that I had, that, that I had strong convictions about, which brought me to the point of becoming a Christian. And I ended up finding myself in very challenging conversations about politics in my Bible studies and in Sunday school class and, you know, friends from church. So I realized that perhaps more so than any particular issue, the way we were talking to each other about the issues or the way we were talking about people we thought disagreed with us about these issues or just the tendency to think that people who disagree, like in the church, people who um, weren't uh, pro-life. There, there's a tendency to mischaracterize, to generalize, to vilify. You know, so I've had this um, this burning uh, passion, this drive to uh, to figure out how to do it better. You know, and it's not new in the Trump area. This is, you know, we, we've been bad at having these conversations in healthy ways for many years, but certainly the Trump era has exacerbated that. And I thought. If there's one thing I can do is even for myself, because I'm not I'm not the, you know, Bruce Lee of talking politics and religion. That I'm not, I, like I don't have the third degree black belt in this thing. So part of it was just for me learning from other people who are doing it really well, um, which goes to the second part of your question. One of the you know, I keep on referring back to Monica Guzman. I don't know if you know her. She's a brilliant journalist. Um, she is also very involved with an organization called Braver Angels. Her book that came out about a year, a little less than a year ago, December of 2022, uh, was, um, it was, it was, I never thought of it that way. Um, and, and it's all about talking to people who disagree with you about certain things. Most, she was focusing mostly on politics, but the idea is to have this radical curiosity, this, you know, to, to approach people instead of approaching people in a transactional or a contentious way and looking to score points or I'm going to say the perfect thing and it's going to convince them and everybody else who's listening to go about these conversations in a, with a, a very curious disposition. Oh, wow. And, and with leaving open the possibility that somebody will say something that will lead you to say, huh, I never thought of it that way. So I think one of the ways that we can get there, and John Rausch talked about this recently when he came on the program, um, what they uh, really uh, talk a lot about at Braver Angels, the organization that Monty is a part of now, um, is to, instead of doing that thing where you have a comeback or you want to correct somebody um, or shoot somebody down or, or you know, cut them down or what have you, to, to ask questions, kind of what you were talking about before, where you say, huh, that's interesting. Um, what, t tell me about what happened, like your life experience. So you, you, you've, had, you've lived this long and have certain professional experiences. And w what happened in your life to get you to the point that leads you to these conclusions? You know, what was it about your upbringing or your beliefs that brought you to um, hold on to these uh, positions? So, and that, what that does is it opens up the, 
it opens up the conversation to someone's story, you know, uh, and we're store like we, we grab as human beings, we gravitate to stories. And then what that also does is it it turns the conversation into something that's less transactional or more contentious and more relational. Because I think we can we can do better when we're in relationship with with others as opposed to constantly being thrown throwing rocks at people, you know, especially those that we love. So. Um, yeah, so if you haven't if you haven't looked up Monty's work, Monica, Monica Guzman, no, not, um, yeah. Braver Angels, uh, and uh, her book is I Never Thought of It That Way. So, oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, good good stuff. Um, so, <laughs> is there anything important I forgot to ask you? Um, I think that that's kind of it. I think. Um, oh my gosh, I feel like I could have talked for a while. As I mentioned, like we, I always get to talk about the day's news, but never really about how I ended up here. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I think I'll, I'll just say like, I really got sucked into this world in 2016, like that, you know, the beginning of that election was the first time I ever covered us politics seriously. And the first thing I did when I was, you know, starting my program here in DC was what are the main issues that Democrats and Republicans disagree on? Like I truly yeah. was coming in blind. I, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, again, was raised in an American curriculum, but, and took AP us history and all these things. So like, I truly did not understand why everyone was so angry all the time. <laughs> um, like I truly like coming from El Salvador, I was like, you guys live in the United States of America. What are you yeah. talking about? Obviously, like I'm still a very idealistic person. I, I definitely, def- definitely consider myself an optimist. So like I've obviously learned a lot since 2016 and I understand why people are upset. Um, but it, it was that thing that I came in thinking, yeah, the U.S. has figured it out. No, the U.S. has not <laughs> figured it out. They definitely have figured some things out better than others. But um, it's definitely a, a beautiful thing to be able to, like, witness and write about and, like, you know, write the first copy of history of, like, the American experiment. Because it's definitely an experiment. It's definitely... I think we're in an era right now where like a lot of the testing is going one way or the other. Um, and we're trying new things that we never tried before. And like, definitely again, overall an unprecedented era. Um, but I feel very lucky that I get to see it, um, especially as a non citizen. Like, uh, again, sometimes I think that makes it a little easier because I can, you know, not take it super personally, but at the same time, we're talking about issues that affect, you know, Latinos that affect immigrants that affect, women um that affect salvadorans which i am and all of these things that um, are my identities and so it, it really is uh, a time to be covering this yeah. and uh I, I i sometimes don't really talk about like the whole idea of the american dream but i never thought that i would be doing this um and so when i you know preached this idea of like patience when talking these issues with people who might have different opinions than you like i know i'm sounding like uh, an extreme optimist or like I, I know that sometimes some people might say like oh well you're ignoring the fact that some of the things that people might say can be hurtful and i and i'm very aware that a lot of the times um a lot of these things that people some people's opinions might be really hurtful and i'm not saying you get to excuse that but um you can't fully understand what's going on in america if you're if you just want to you know um ignore that you have to uh maybe not engage with it but you have to at least try to understand it um yeah. where that's coming from yeah 
Yeah, you, you're. It's funny. You're, you're like, hey guys, you you guys, you guys need to come on a run with me or something. You do, <laughs> do the meditation or the yoga or whatever. Yeah. But you're right. It's there's a tendency to get upset about everything. Like, wh- why are we upset about Bud Light and Barbie again? I don't know. Yeah. But you know, right. so I mean, oh, there, but there yeah. are yeah, but there are some things that are really of historic importance. Yeah. You know, um, the the widespread efforts to overturn the election, the the yeah. foundation of our democracy. This is stuff of historical importance, and you are writing, as you said, the first draft of history. So before we go, uh, let folks know how we can follow you at the Washington Post, online, your wonderful Twitter feed, and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, so I'm on on Twitter, clearly my favorite social media, even if it's it's a sinking ship, I'm going down with it. Uh, But I'm there as Mariana A. Underdash Alfaro. Um, and then, you know, Maria Alfaro on the, on the Washington Post, um, I'm on the breaking news team and I hope to be on it for more time, uh, because I really love, you know, being able to witness all of this. Yeah. And we will definitely put that in the show, some links in the show notes, uh, so you can follow Mariana and her uh, brilliant work. And, uh, thank you so much. This was so cool of you to come in and spend some time with us. No, this is great. Yeah. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again. Like I said, when I'm in D.C., drinks are on me. (laughs) No, yeah. We can go to the post pub. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That'd be great. All right. Uh, That'd be awesome. So as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We are so easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me online. I'm still on Twitter, but I'm more of a Threads guy these days. At Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S is in Sam. At Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. And have a great week. Oh,